Before we start this episode, a quick note to say that it was recorded before we had audio-only listeners in mind. So, to get the full experience, I'd recommend watching on Spotify or YouTube. Enjoy! Hello everyone and welcome to this, the Charity Professional Development Community's 20-minute webinars. Today, I'm glad to say that we are joined by Natalie Pieri, who is going to be talking to us about the essentials of bookkeeping. So, Natalie over to you good morning hello right let me uh get the presentation up on the screen here hopefully you can all see that um so yeah my name is natty Peary. i run a business called accounting connections we're a local firm of um chartered certified accountants and um i'm here today to give you an essential guide to uh best bookkeeping um for charities so there's going to be a lot of content that we're going to run through today. So there's just a brief overview there. I'm not going to go through it all right now because I'm going to delve into each part in detail now. Um, so who are charities regulated by? They're regula regulated by the Charity Commission. It's a non-ministerial department of uh, the government that was set up in 1853 uh, as a regular uh, a bit of uh, fact for you there. Um, so every charity needs to file an annual return electronically with the Charities Commission within 10 months of their year end date. That is the set deadline for all charities. So if your charity's year end date is the 31st of March 2022, then your annual return needs to be filed with the Charity Commission by the 31st of January 2023. So the contents of what an annual return actually um, contains differs depending upon how big your charity is, uh, mainly on turnover. So as you can see there, for each turnover threshold that you hit, the annual return requirement becomes slightly more. Uh, as you can see, when you get to the 25,000 um, threshold there, then you, you go into independent examiner territory. So I'll explain what that is now. Those annual return requirements are set in stone. Uh, there are, however, exceptions, as there always are to, to every rule. If your charity constitution document states that you must have a, an audit every year, then regardless of what your threshold is, your turnover threshold, um, you'll have to prepare, you know, get your uh, accounts audited every year. Similarly, if you have a funder um, who is giving your charity money and they stipulate that you have to be audited every year, then regardless of your turnover, you have to have an audit. And of course, there are exempt charities. Uh, some of those charities, um, essentially, they're the types of charities that don't have to comply with the thresholds. Um, and they're, they're things like Oh, gosh, um, I will get that. I will get that to you soon. I'll find out the list of exemptions. Right. Let's move on. So when a charity's annual income is over 25,000, the trustees must arrange for an independent person or accountancy firm to carry out their audit or independent examination of their charity's accounts. The purpose of it is to give a charity's trustees, supporters, beneficiaries, the wider public, some independent assurance that the charity's money has been properly accounted for and that proper accounting records have been kept. Oh, so here we go. Sorry, I've got the place in my notes now. Apologies. Uh, exempt charities. So we've got um, they're, they're charities that are they adhere to reporting thresholds and requirements of, of additional regulators. So academies, universities, social housing providers, they don't re they don't have to file um, the documents with the Charities Commission like everybody else does. 
So there's two different types of a review you can have on your accounts, independent examination or an audit. I'm going to go through the difference between the two in just a second. But when you get to 25,000 in income, you have an independent examination. When your turnover hits 250,000, then you either have an independent examination or an audit, but this is all dependent upon your gross assets. If your gross assets are below 3.26 million, then it's just an independent examination. If it's over 3.26 million, then you're required to have an audit. And regardless of your asset situation, if your income is over a million pounds, then you must be audited. So I've been throwing around these terms, independent examination and audit. What's the real difference between the two? In essence, an independent examination is a light touch scrutiny of the accounts. Uh, it's just confirmation that the accounting records have been correctly translated into a set of accounts and they've been produced in the right format with the necessary level of disclosure. An independent examiner does not form an opinion on whether the disclosures or the accounts are a true and fair view of the accounting position. However, on the flip side, um, an audit is an in-depth scrutiny of a, a charity's accounts. The auditor is required to provide a formal opinion on whether the accounts and the disclosures represent a true and fair view of the charity's financial affairs and going concern. In either circumstance, independent examination or audit, um, they are legally required to report areas of material concern. Areas of material concern are things like criminal behaviour, so fraud, money laundering, supporting, you know, potential supporting terrorism um, or potentially being used as a conduit for criminal activity. Um, similarly, if they, if they determine any material failures of internal controls and governance, this is something that also needs to be reported. So who can review your accounts? Well, if the charity's income is between 25,000 and 250,000, then they need to be signed by a competent independent person. A competent person technically should have the necessary skill level and experience to carry out an independent examination under the charity commission guidelines. They don't need to be a member of a listed body. If, however, the charity's income is over 250,000, but less than a million, the report must be signed by a member of a listed body, such as ACCA or ICAEW. So that's Chartered Certified Accountants, Chartered Accountants. In either case, to be classified as an independent, the person mustn't have a connection with the charity, uh, with any of the charity trustees, which might inhibit the impartial conduct of the examination. That's the technical wording. They are allowed to be a supporter of the charity, but they're not allowed to be a material donor. Uh, they also can't be involved in the day-to-day -day administration of the charity or be closely connected to anybody that is. There's obviously full guidance on, on it all at the Charity Commission, but that is a brief overview. So types of income, your charity, as it rolls through its um, its year, is going to have income in from lots of different sources. Obviously, donations, people are going to be giving you money um, because they want to support your cause. Legacies, this is when you're given money in somebody's will, when they leave it to you in trust. Um, charitable activities and fundraising, you know, this is the general day to day stuff that you do in your charity to raise money for your activities. Trading activities, however, is a, is a slightly different um, because your charity might perform a trade. So as an example, I'd say like running a coffee shop, that is a trade. So 
However, so long as the profits from that trading income are going to be used to serve the charity's primary purpose, which is detailed in your governing document, then you don't have to pay any tax on any profits that you make because the profits are reinvested back into the charity um, for its primary purpose. Uh, similarly, charities can have investments and they can have gains and losses um, that need to be reported also. But all of these different types of income need to be listed separately. So um, in your financial records, in your bookkeeping records, I would suggest having different nominal codes for each of these different types of income. OK, so in addition to having multiple different types of income within your charity, you are also going to have restricted or not restricted income, restricted, unrestricted incomes. They are like subcategories of each of your items of income. So any money that's given to a charity for a specific purpose needs to be ring fenced as restricted income. So, for example, um, I'm just going to give a, a real life example. Um, a few years ago, um, myself and the ladies in my office, we uh, put on a an event and we raised money specifically because we knew that our local Medway food bank needed a van. So we gave them the money and we said, we have raised this money specifically to help you fund a van. So because we have told them that that is the stipulation by which we've given them that money, they had to account for it that way. They had to put it in a ring-fenced account for a van, and that's what it was spent on. Any other money that you give to the charity, had I just donated it and said, there you go, here's some money, carry on doing your great work, then it would have been put in, in their general fund and could be used in any way the charity sees fit, but prim primarily it's to, to suit the primary purposes outlined in the governing document. So this is what the note in the accounts looks like for income. So as you can see, you've got your, all your different income types listed there, but also you've got two different columns and the restricted income funds are listed entirely separately. So within each income category, you've got restricted and restricted. And this is how you report funds. So like I say, in, in each circumstance where somebody gives you some money and it's restricted, then that in essence creates a fund. Um, and that fund needs to be accounted for separately to everything else. You need to know what income is. There are lots of separate pots. Okay, so for this one, for example, I'm going to run through this note so that you know. So at the beginning of the period, you've got a balance for each pot. You've then got any income that's gone into it during the year. You've then got the money that's spent out of the pot during the year. Sometimes you can have transfers between the pots. For example, if um, if one pot's running particularly low um, and you, th you think, oh, we, we need some more money in that, we need to transfer the funds. The thing I would say, though, that if you're trying to transfer money out of a restricted fund into the general fund, then you must always go back to the person that gave you those restricted funds to ask for their permission as to whether that, you know, it's acceptable for you to move that in back into general funds. The gains and losses column here is for investment gains and losses. And then obviously that leaves you with your balance carried forward into the next year. So this will be a standard note that's in all charity accounts and will list all the separate restricted funds that you have. Gift aid. Right. So back in 1990, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time was Sir John Major and he introduced the gift aid scheme. So we have something to thank Sir John Major for. It's this. 
The scheme allows charities to increase their donations by 25%. So it means that if somebody donates a, a pound to your charity, the government will give you an extra 25p. So you as the charity will receive £1.25. So in order, uh, gift aid can only be claimed in certain, certain circumstances. Okay. The person that's given you the money, they must be a UK taxpayer. They must have paid the same amount or more in income tax or capital gains in that tax year in order to, to uh, claim the gift aid. And you must hold a completed and signed gift aid declaration on file for each donor. So when I say a gift aid declaration, this is what I mean. In order to have an accurate gift aid declaration, it has to include the name of your charity on it, because obviously the donor, they need to know that it's your charity that they're giving money to and claiming the gift aid for. The donor's full name and address. And if you don't have the full address, then the house number and postcode is sufficient. A declaration by the donor agreeing that they're happy for you to claim gift aid on their donation. Uh, and also a declaration confirming that they've paid sufficient UK tax in that tax year. Um, because if they haven't, then it is their responsibility to pay any difference. So you need to make sure that they're aware of that. As a point to note, uh, if you're asking donors to sign one form for all of their donations, you know, if they're giving you a regular donation and they just want to sign one form and that be done with it, then just put a little caveat statement in there just to say, you know, it's your responsibility if you uh, move or if you stop paying the sufficient level of tax for us to claim gift aid, you need to let us know, uh, inform us of any changes. Oh, geez. Right. So cash donations. There is a scheme called the Gift Aid Small Donations Scheme, uh, and this allows you to claim that additional 25 percent without having any gift aid de declarations in place for cash donations of 30 pounds or less. You can only claim up to 2000 pounds of this gift aid every tax year. So that's 8000 pounds worth of cash donations. But like each individual donation needs to be 30 pounds or less. You cannot claim gift aid in these circumstances, okay? And I, I will explain the reasons why. Um, charity membership fees. If you are charging people to be a member of your charity and in return for that, they're, they're getting certain benefits, then they're not donating to your charity, they're paying to be a member. So in that circumstance, you can't claim gift aid. Similarly, if you're charging people to come to an event, they're giving you the money in exchange for attending an event. That's not a gift aid donation. Money raised from a charity auction is similar. Again, they're paying for an item. They're not donating to your charity, even though that a part of it is coming to the charity is not for that reason. Um, similarly, selling goods is exactly the same reason why. Limited companies. Now, limited companies get tax relief on charity donations so already through their limited company so the, the government is not going to give additional relief by adding 25 percent onto their donation uh calf vouchers is a specific exemption that that isn't included um similarly payroll giving really what you need to think about is if if somebody is donating money to my charity are they getting a benefit for doing so 
are they you know if, if they're giving you 10 pounds um and then you're giving them a badge or a bag or something um in exchange for the money that they've just given you then that's not a donation that's a that's a that's a purchase so gift aid reclaims gift aid reclaims are made through your charity government gateway account um when you go to reclaim um through your government gateway account you'll ask to be upload a list of um it's just an excel list there's a template you can download it the contents of that excel is your donor names addresses amounts dates um and and that's all the stuff that you need to hold on to so record keeping there are the the time requirement here as you can see it's pretty much six years um however for each individual thing it all depends on the point at which that six years starts um so your accounting records it's six years after the charity's financial year end uh, for cash donations it's six years after the date you receive the cash but primarily you're looking six years to keep all your records and this is what you need to keep you know all your core records uh, which is uh, evidence of income, bank statements, um, costings, receipts. All of this stuff, however, I will say is um, you can, it is perfectly acceptable to have good quality photographs or scans. You don't have to keep everything on paper. That is, um, HMRC have said that, they're, that they will accept good quality photocopies or scans as evidence of receipts and income, etc. Um, if somebody has said that uh, an item of income is restricted, then you should be keeping that as evidence. Your independent examiner or auditor will ask for confirmation of restricted income. Similarly, they will ask you to evidence that large chunks of unrestricted income has been clarified as not restricted um, as well. And then gift aid records. So for your gift aid records, you want to keep all of those Excel uploads that you've put in all of the assigned gift aid declarations. Again, you can keep keep these as scans, photocopies. Um, and for the cash donation scheme, a little bit more that you need to keep here. You need to keep a complete list of all the cash donations you've received, the date you collected the cash, the date it was paid into the bank. And if you're taking card, contactless card payments, then you're gonna need all the card receipts as well, or some kind of statement showing all of that. Um, you may have seen on the previous slide, I said general ledger as well. Uh, general ledger is a list of all the transactions that have taken place in your in your financial year, your income, your expenses, your journals, etc. Um, and that will all be on whatever bookkeeping system it is that you're using, whether that be zero QuickBooks. Um, similarly, a, a full list of everything that's happened in an Excel format is is entirely acceptable, too. And there we go. We got through it in the end. <laughs> That is all the information. Back to you, Zach. Amazing. Thank you so much, Natalie, for that. That was a lot to take in, but I think mm. will be extremely useful. And the great thing is, is that it's recorded so people can go back and uh, look at uh, what what you said. I have one very quick question. Uh, so um, would you ever recommend uh, someone, an organization, a charity to perform an audit or or should I say get their accounts audited uh, even though they weren't legally required to they don't hit the threshold hmm 
it's a big expense to get your get your accounts mm. audited. Um, I would say only in the circumstance where you feel that it will be required. Um, let's say like if you're if you're going for some big funding, uh, some large mm. funders tend to say, you know, they, they're going to want to see audited accounts to make sure that the charity that they're giving money to is going to be using it properly. Um, and the way to to give a little bit more emphasis to the fact that you're doing things right is to say here here is an audit statement from our auditor. It, it's all been it's all been done properly. Yeah, no, that's that's understandable. Thank you mm. for that. I think it's a good thing to uh, to bear in mind uh, if you you know did want to go a little bit more uh, stringent or a bit more scrutiny then it's an option but it, it mm. is at a cost absolutely um, it is at a cost as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so brilliant i mean that's all we have time for today um, i think that was a really great session um just so you all know this is an ongoing series and our next session will be with Ruth Dwight, who's going to be talking to us about the difference between governance and management. That will be on the 15th of September, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so last thing to say is uh, thank you again to Natalie uh, for today, and we will see you all next time, I hope. Me again. If you liked that episode, then please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends.